I want to begin with a song, and I don't sing, uh, so I'm not going to, but it's a song you're all familiar with, at least most of you should be, Amazing Grace, classic hymn of the church. And if you know the, the main stanza, it talks about, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And that last phrase is the one that's kind of stuck with me for years. I've always wondered about it because throughout the Bible, you hear all kinds of metaphors about blindness and sight, and it comes up in that song. And I've wondered, is it just poetic license? Is it just a metaphor for being without Christ and then finding him? Or is there something perhaps more literal about having eyes that can see once we come to faith in God? It's kind of a piece I want to work through this morning, but... To begin with, I want you just to hold on to that. And let's go to Calcutta. In the community there where Mother Teresa served, it was their custom every morning to take an ambulance to the local train station where they would collect people who had been abandoned there during the night by their families because they were too sick or dying to be taken care of at home anymore. So the sisters would come and and collect these people and bring them back to the hospital. One morning they found a man in really bad condition. He was very close to death. He had open wounds all over his body, maggots literally eating his flesh. When he came to the hospital, Mother Teresa claimed him for herself. She spent all morning caring for him, keeping him cool and comfortable in his hospital bed, cleaning his wounds, praying by his bedside. And then very briefly, he opened up his eyes, said thank you, and died. Mother Teresa gathered with the other sisters in the community that night, and she had a radiant smile on her face, and she said to them, This morning I had the privilege of caring for the dying Christ. A veiled reference to Matthew 25, where Jesus says, That which you do to the least of these you've done unto me. Now, Mother Teresa is one of the most celebrated Christians of the 20th century. She was hailed by popes and presidents, by Catholics and Protestants, by believers and non-believers. The question is why? She didn't have any wealth, obviously. She had no great position of power or authority over some nationwide or global organization. She didn't have a great education or astute theological mind. So why did she have so much influence over so many people? I want to suggest to you that what made Mother Teresa so impactful was not primarily what she did in the world, but how she saw the world. Where others would see worthless street children, she saw the children of God. Where others would see just a dying beggar at a train station, she saw the face of Christ. Where others would be impressed with a president, she saw a man in need of God's grace like any other. The way Mother Teresa saw the world preceded her actions within it. And I think that's one of the great challenges that we are all facing as Christians in the West. And consider that we are the wealthiest most resourced Christians who have ever lived in the history of the world. We have more money, more churches, more Christian colleges and universities, more Christian conferences, more radio stations, more Bibles, more Christian books, $7 billion a year, the Christian book industry. More resources to evangelize and engage this world with the message of Christ than any Christians who've ever lived in the history of civilization. And yet by almost any measure... Christian faith and its values are losing influence in the West. How do we explain that? It's not a lack of resources. I don't even think it's a lack of motivation. I think it's a lack of vision. 
Because how we see the world will determine how we act within it. And we simply do not see this world the way Jesus sees it. You know, a great deal of Jesus' ministry, both his miracles and his parables, were designed to open the eyes of his disciples to see a different world. He wanted them to see a world in which the widow who put just a penny into the offering actually gave the most. And a world in which the first would be last, the last would be first. A world where a little child would be considered greatest in the kingdom of God. A world in which the rejected, the marginalized, the forgotten, the diseased, the poor, that they would be given the seat of honor. He wanted them to see a world in which even a rejected and crucified Messiah actually becomes king to rule over all. But over and over and over again, his disciples did not see this world that he was trying to open their eyes to. And so, quoting the prophet Isaiah, Jesus rebuked them repeatedly. And he said to them, you have eyes, but you still do not see. We get so fixated on the right procedures, the right methodologies, the right tactics and skills in the church, when all the while, most of what Jesus did was try to get us to see the world differently, knowing that our actions then would automatically follow our sight. And yet, like his disciples so long ago, I wonder if he would say the same thing to many of us. You have eyes, but you still do not see. So what I want to do is walk through a story from Matthew chapter 26 that illustrates two different ways of seeing the world. One that most of us will identify with, and then the one that God is calling us to. In Matthew 26, this is the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's after the Lord's had the last supper with his disciples. He's gone out to the garden. He's expecting to be betrayed and crucified. I'm going to pick up in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the 12 and with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one who was with him stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Now, this story is horrible. In fact, in one of the gospel accounts, Jesus refers to this moment as the hour when darkness reigns. The lowest point of his time on earth. Betrayal by a friend capture by his enemies preparation to be killed and i want you to notice how jesus responds versus how peter responds we know that it's peter who was the one who struck the servant of the high priest and severed his ear they're both experiencing the exact same situation and yet they respond completely differently jesus responds peacefully peter responds violently jesus responds in faith Peter responds out of fear. I think Jesus and Peter really represent two completely different ways of seeing the world. And so I want to kind of unpack these two ways. And let's begin with Peter, because he's the one most of us will probably identify with. 
So Peter's there that night in the garden and he sees Judas and these soldiers coming with their clubs and their swords and their chains ready to capture them, ready to probably kill them. And Peter interprets this scene as an incredibly dangerous and threatening moment. Now, if you've taken biology 101, you know that when an organism is threatened, it responds in one of two ways, right? What are they? Fight or flight. You see Peter do both of them here. First, he tries to fight. He grabs a sword, and being a fisherman rather than a soldier, all he manages to do is cut off a guy's ear. And when he realizes he's not going to subdue this threat through force, through fighting, he then flees. He and the rest of the disciples run for the hills. They abandon Jesus. But what I want you to see is that both fight and flight are really two sides of the same coin. They're both ways of trying to gain control over dangerous circumstances. One, through direct intervention, I'm going to overpower my enemy and gain control over it that way. The other is by removing yourself from the circumstance, you get control over it by putting distance between yourself and that which is threatening you. So here's Peter's view of the world. The world is a dangerous and threatening place that makes me afraid. And in my fear, I seek control to overcome that which is threatening me. Okay, now now, here's the leap I want you to make. And it's going to sound strange at first, but I'll unpack it. All human religion, without exception, all human religion is a system of control predicated on fear. Think about it. If you see this world as a dangerous and threatening place that makes you afraid, what better way to overcome it and gain control over it than to control the God or the gods who created it? That's essentially what all religions try to do. It's fear seeking control through manipulation of deities. Let me take us out of our immediate context, a a totally different place to illustrate how this works. When I was 19 years old, I spent some time in India. And the reason for that is my father's from India. My mother is Swedish and Norwegian, so I'm a huge mess. I don't want to get into that. I I like my Ikea meatballs with curry. That's kind of how I put that together. But I was in India that summer for my cousin's wedding, and I was living in the flat of my aunt and uncle in Mumbai. And early one morning, I was still asleep, the door to my bedroom burst open, and my uncle comes marching into the bedroom, and he's balancing on his head a large silver dish. And from what I could make out, he was walking very carefully because the dish was filled with water, and in it were flowers and a coconut that was on fire. (laughs) Not the strangest part of the scene. Because around my uncle were a bunch of women, very colorfully dressed in Indian saris, dancing and singing and banging drums and cymbals and bells. And they were just going all around the bedroom while I laid there in the bed. And it was just bizarre. It was like, where's the white rabbit in the tea party, right? It's just a strange way to wake up. You wonder what was in my food last night. And then as my eyes started coming into focus, I realized something. That these are the ugliest women I'd ever seen. Because <laughs> it turns out they weren't women. They were eunuchs, and I'd never met a eunuch. I had to you know, ask a little bit, so what's a eunuch? <laughs> uh, you can read about them in Scripture. Eunuchs are men who are castrated as boys, and so they never really quite develop into men. And in certain forms of Hinduism, it's believed that eunuchs, being genderless, are closer to the divine. And so they'll roam around the streets every day looking for households that are celebrating a birth or a wedding or some kind of significant event, 
They'll knock on the door and they'll want to perform religious ceremonies in that household to bless whatever's going on. And they found out that my cousin was getting married. They knocked on the door that morning and they were performing their religious ceremonies throughout the house. My uncle being the head of the household was the main actor in their pujas in their prayer ceremonies. So they were doing this all around my bedroom and they eventually leave and go to the rest of the house. I got up, get dressed to find out what on earth is happening. Eventually I'm out in the hall And after they had finished all their ceremonies, my uncle gets in this really nasty argument with these eunuchs by the front door. And I don't speak Hindi, so I didn't know what was going on. I had to ask a household servant. And he said, oh, they're haggling over the price. I'm like, price for what? They didn't give me breakfast in bed, right? They're just praying around the bed. And he said, no, this is how they make their living is they go around and they offer these blessings in these households and they expect to be paid for it. And if you don't pay them enough, then they threaten to curse the household or the wedding or whatever's going on. And so my uncle's arguing with them over how much money they want. Now you might think my uncle is some kind of country bumpkin, uneducated. He was actually a highly educated, very successful businessman with enterprises in Hong Kong and New York and Dubai and India. He's very successful. And yet here he is arguing with a bunch of cross-dressing Daisy drag queens, essentially in, (laughs) in his foyer. Why? And there goes my mic, excuse me. Because entering into a marriage is a very dangerous, threatening thing to do. It's unpredictable. You don't know how the marriage is going to go. And at least in that time, in that place, in that culture, the way you overcome the fear, the way you try to gain control, the way you get God's blessing is apparently by bribing a bunch of eunuchs. Now we chuckle and laugh and go, oh, how bizarre and how backwards. Is your relationship with God really that different? How many of us are fearful about the future, about our children, about our health, about our business, about our money, about our marriage, and we try to gain God's favor by bargaining with Him, by saying, I'll go to church more regularly. I'll give more money. I'll serve more faithfully. I'll keep my morality within certain boundaries. I'll keep my sexuality in certain areas. I'll do all the things just like God wants me to do. I'll read my Bible more. And in exchange, we expect something. We expect protection. We expect blessing. We expect God to mitigate our fears. But I want you to notice something. Your view of the world is no different than Peter's, no different than my uncle's, no different than most people who walk this planet. Fundamentally, if that's how you're living your life with God, you see a dangerous and threatening world in which you are afraid and you are seeking control and you are merely using him as a device to overcome your fear. And from that posture, it is impossible to obey the commandments of Jesus because they make no sense in a dangerous world. Love my enemy? Why on earth would I ever love my enemy? That's the person who's threatening me. Give to the one who asks me, why would I give more? I need to hoard what I have to protect myself from the uncertainties of the future. Walk the second mile with the one who's already forced me to go one? That doesn't make sense. They're going to take advantage of me. I need to protect myself. Turn the other cheek. Let somebody use me as a doormat. Are you kidding me, Jesus? That makes no sense. You cannot make any sense of the commands of Jesus 
if you are afraid. And if you see this world as a dangerous and threatening place. And I am convinced this is why we are seeing the church in the West lose its influence. We simply do not have the power to live like Jesus because we don't see the world that Jesus sees. We're afraid. And in our fear, we take a posture of self-preservation. Against the culture, we lash out like Peter did, trying to gain dominance and control politically, economically, you name it. Or we run away, we retreat, we go into our safe little Christian enclaves to protect ourselves and our families, we flee. Both of them are a means of control over a dangerous and threatening world. And we try to employ God to protect us through manipulation and appeasement. There's another way. There's the way of Jesus. In this story from Matthew 26, you notice that Jesus acts completely differently than Peter. He doesn't fight back. Neither does he run away. He simply says to Judas, friend, do what you've come to do. And then when Peter pulls out his sword and attacks the soldier, Jesus rebukes him and says, no, this is not how it's supposed to be with you. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus does something remarkable. If you keep reading the story, he kneels down and he picks up the severed ear and he heals the man who has come to kill him. He actively loves his enemy. Why? Where does he find the strength and the power to not be afraid, to not seek control, to not run away, but instead to actively love even the most hate-filled people in this hour when darkness reigns? He reveals it at the end. He says, don't you know that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus sees something very different. They are both looking out on this scene. He and Peter, this hour when darkness reigns at these evil people who've come to assault them, to capture them, to kill them. But beyond that, on a deeper level, Jesus recognizes something else. That this is not a dangerous and threatening world, despite all appearances to the contrary. He recognizes, in fact, that this is a perfectly safe world in which to live because it is a God with us world in which not even a sparrow falls to the ground without our Heavenly Father's knowledge. Jesus knows that everything that is unfolding that night, as horrible and evil as it appears to be, is happening according to the sovereign will of His Father in Heaven. And that through these events, the Scriptures will be fulfilled, and He is fully and completely entrusting Himself to His Father. And with that vision of the world, knowing that He is perfectly safe, He is set free from fear. And without fear, he doesn't have to seek control. And without seeking control, he is now able to love. He's able to give of himself. He's able to heal his enemy. He's able to rebuke Peter for seeking control through a sword. You see, it's only when we are no longer concerned about our own well-being, because we're so convinced that we are perfectly safe, that we will find the power to love, to serve, 
to give, to forgive, to take up our cross and give ourselves to this world. The problem is we don't see that world. We believe we are under threat, that we're in danger. We forget that it's a God with us world in which nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, not even life or death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if that is true, then we are the most dangerous people on the planet because we are now set free to do what no one else can do, to love and surrender ourselves to this world. In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was a 26-year-old Baptist minister in Montgomery, Alabama. Fairly new to the city, new to his church, It was just a few months earlier that Rosa Parks had refused to give up her seat on the bus, which began the bus boycott. And the other ministers in town knew that it was a suicide mission to be leading that. So they gave it to King to lead because he was young and naive and didn't know any better. On the night of January 26, 1956, King was woken in the middle of the night by a phone call. The voice on the other end of the line told him that if he and his family were not out of town within three days, they would all be dead. Now, if you're a black minister in Montgomery, Alabama, 1956, leading a bus boycott, that is not an idle threat. King hung up the phone, and he said that he couldn't go back to sleep. So he poured himself a cup of coffee in his kitchen, and he sat down at the table, and he buried his face into his hands, and he said he was absolutely paralyzed by fear. All he could think about was how he and his young wife and infant daughter were going to get out of town how he could protect them and himself, how he could save face with the other leaders. But he described himself as paralyzed and scared to death. When we see a dangerous and threatening world, we turn inward in an act and posture of self-preservation where we can only think about ourselves and inaction. And that's very much where I think the church in the West is today. But that night over his cup of coffee at his kitchen table, King heard a second voice. Not over the telephone, but an inner voice. This is what the voice said to him. He reported this in a sermon years later. The voice said to him, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you even until the end of the world. The voice promised King, he says, never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. No, never alone. He promised to never, never, never leave me alone. Now, King was, of course, a Baptist minister, highly educated. He came from the home of a Baptist minister. He had been in the church his entire life. He was a brilliant theologian. And yet, for the first time in his life, the presence of God was an experiential reality. It wasn't just a theological construct. It wasn't just a cultural reality. It was an experienced truth. And he said at that moment in his kitchen, in the middle of the night, his fear was absolutely gone. And he knew, in his own words, that he could stand up and he could face anything. His eyes had been opened to a God-with-us world in which he didn't have to be afraid. This new vision of the world was going to be tested three nights later. King was in his church for a rally around the bus boycott when somebody burst into the back of the sanctuary and shouted that King's home, the parsonage right down the road, had been firebombed. 
So King and the rest of the congregation ran out the back of the church, ran down the street to find his house on fire where his wife and daughter were. They escaped unharmed, thankfully. But King knew that the bigger threat was still in front of him. Because surrounding his house was a large, angry mob of black citizens from Montgomery, ready to riot because of this attack on their leader's home. And they were armed. They had guns and rifles and baseball bats. And then King did something absolutely astonishing. He stood on the porch of his still-burning house, and he addressed this crowd. And this is what he said to them. He said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. But I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let them know that you love them. For we are doing what is right. We are doing what is just. And our God is with us. Upon hearing that, the crowd dropped their weapons. They held hands together. And they began to sing a hymn. Guess which one? Amazing Grace. One of the white police officers who was there that night said that if it hadn't been for that black preacher, we would have all been dead. Historians look back on that night as the turning point in the civil rights movement. The moment at which love for one's enemy, where the teachings of Jesus took the forefront in the struggle for equal rights. And it transformed our country. I think the historians are wrong. That night was not the turning point in the civil rights movement. The turning point was three nights earlier in King's kitchen. When he had such a profound encounter with Jesus Christ that it transformed his vision of the world and took away his fear. That's what gave him the power to call others to love their enemies, to forgive, to bless to not fight, to not seek control at the end of a sword or run away from an injustice. If we want to see the church in the West regain its influence and its strength, it's not by throwing more money at our problems. It's not by getting more resources. It's not by trying to get more control in Washington or Wall Street or in our school boards or in our communities. And it's not by running away either and retreating into our little enclaves of safety. What's going to make a difference is when we, the people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, have such a profound communion with him that he transforms our vision of the world so that we are no longer afraid. So that we are convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not a Roman cross, not an assassin's bullet. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So then we are set free. Free to love, to serve, to give, to bless, rather than fight. Now, the obvious question is how? How does that happen? How do we receive new eyes? How do we see the world the way Jesus does? It happens just the way the song says by God's amazing grace. It happens when we come to the end of ourselves the way King did in his kitchen over his cup of coffee. When we realize we have no power, that our control is actually an illusion. We never had it and we never will. It happens when we cry out to God knowing that we can do nothing apart from you. 
And he meets us in that place, in that hour when darkness reigns, and shows us the truth that he's with us, that he'll never leave us. And clinging to that fact, then by his grace, we step out into the world. Only when that happens in the church in the West, only when we give up our illusion of control and surrender ourselves to the fact that this is a God with us world, only then will we truly be able to sing, I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, I confess for myself and my sisters and brothers how blind we are. How we believe we have more control than we do and we have trusted things other than you for our safety in this world. Forgive us our attempts at controlling you and manipulating you through our feeble actions, behaviors, sacrifices. Draw us closer to you. Pour out your spirit that we may experience the grace of having our eyes opened to the reality of this God with us world. And empower us to live the way you lived. To serve and to love, to forgive, to bless even those who would call themselves our enemies. This we pray In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.